Welcome to Our Social Impact. This is Dirk Van Velzen, and I'm Executive Director of the Prison Scholar Fund, where we have a mission of providing education and employment assistance to help incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of incarceration. Today we have Wes Irwin and Kevin Ronka, the men who produced Nightcrawlers, the movie. So Kevin, tell me about yourself. My name is Kevin Ronka. I'm a filmmaker, a writer, director, producer, and I founded an art collective called Bright Brain, which is mostly based out of California. How about you, Wes? My name is Wesley Irwin. Uh, my background is sociology and education. My real passion is social justice, and I'm the author of the Adventures of Alea children's book series, which I very much enjoy writing for my daughter, Alea. Very cool. So I bumped into you guys at the film screening of The Nightcrawler. Tell me about, about that and how you how you got there. You start. You <laughs> start. All right. Well, Kevin and I met at the Democrat National Convention in 2016 in Philadelphia, and he, at that time, Right Brain Studios um, was was over there to film uh, the Revolution televised, and Kevin had me on camera saying some things about the theft of the primary and my prediction that Donald Trump would take the White House. And we just stayed in touch after that. And uh, so here we are more than three years later and we're teamed up again to bring Nightcrawlers to Seattle. Yeah, that's one of the things I really liked about my relationship with, with Wesley. And I like every relationship or friendship to be kind of unique, but um, there's something special about it. Because when I met him, I felt like Right Bane wasn't really for, fully formed yet. Like the art collective hadn't really, we didn't know really what it was. Um, we were just using it as a name because you, you, know, you have to have a production company to make a film really. And uh, it was kind of crystallizing when I was in Philly and we were capturing what we were capturing and you just can kind of feel it. And I feel like at the peak of that, I met Wesley. Um, you know, we just immediately felt this sort of art. And I'm very uh, feeling based. Like if I feel something, I'll go for it. I mean, to take even Nightcrawlers as an example, like, watching the trailer at a meeting and within 15 seconds saying like, I want to spend the next few years working on this was just totally instinct based feeling very, it almost is a little dangerous to be like, I feel this. So I'm going to do this right now and make such a huge decision. And sometimes it can be to a fault, but I've noticed more often than not, when you are, are brave like that and just make a move like that, it works out. Um, and you kind of ignore stigmas like in society. So meeting a stranger at the time, Wesley on the street and bonding over what was going on. And I'm, I've stayed closer in touch with him than people I knew for years. I feel closer uh, with Wesley than some people I knew for years and years. So I think, um, you know, it's really cool that that can happen. Just meet someone on the street in today's day and age. And uh, and now, yeah, so years later, um, putting another thing together. So that was that was nice. And I feel like uh, it was a really positive environment there. So what kind of films did you do before this one? Um, when I first traveled to California, uh, I'll admit, like, narrative film was my thing. I really wanted to write. I honestly wanted to write some of the stuff you see, maybe not like Hollywood, Hollywood, but kind of what's become like independent, more Hollywood films. You know, it used to be art house, but it's, even art house films have gotten pretty corporate, I think. But those are the kind of movies I was interested in making is, um, you know, films that kind of defy like maybe all the Hollywood uh, stereotypes and tropes that have just become like a template. Um, but I actually went through a lot of phases. Like when I first got to school, I was going for just narrative films, um, kind of just inspired by films I enjoy. And I took a class called the uh, the films of Rainer Werner Fassbender. I actually was leaving school the first day of school with my uh, looking down at my phone and bumped face to face. Like I hit the wall when I looked up. I was like, I hit this flyer. And I was, so I went back, re-registered, went to this class on this filmmaker, um, Rainer Werner Fassbender, German filmmaker. And just sometimes you just see an artist and it just opened my mind up. It was like taking LSD the first time. You know, just 
a lot of things aligned, and I thought, whoa, this filmmaker's really, like, started reading about him, and, you know, he was very inspired by Brecht and theater, and so, you know, as you go through these influences and you have these moments, you know, your filmmaking starts to change, and it evolves, and then I was, you know, I was inspired by the Quay Brothers, I was doing these sort of experimental films um, that, you know, people weren't really getting, um, and so it just kept evolving, and then it got to a point where I had no money left, and I got really into, you know, I got very political, and it just made sense. I'm political, I don't have any money left, a documentary is probably the only thing I can make, and out of that necessity, a lot of great things are born, I think. So did you make films before you got to college? or And also, where did you go to college? What um, you like? So I was much more studied in screenwriting when I went to I went to Montgomery County Community College um, in Pennsylvania, which you know, doesn't have a huge screenwriting program. Most of Philadelphia um, and places like Pennsylvania don't have those kind of resources. A lot of my friends in California were saying, like, oh, I went to an art high school, and like that was alien to me. I was like, oh, an art high school? Like, what even is that? Oh, you go there, you just learn you know, the arts, and you do filmmaking. And... Like, so for me, it, it wasn't really like that in Philadelphia. Even the film scene was very small. So trying to get something launched was, like, impossible. So uh, I mostly just stuck to screenwriting. Um, screenwriting is a great activity. It's a great part of it because uh, screenplay is the blueprint of the film. It might be the most important part of the production process. With no script, you have nothing. I mean, it, it's the genesis of the story. And it doesn't require any money to write a script, right? If I want to write a period piece, it doesn't cost me money. If I want to shoot a period piece, it's going to cost me $100 million. So your imagination becomes, you know, and if somebody likes your script, there's a potential to have it get made. So I think I just loved screenwriting. Filmmaking seemed impossible, especially because when I first wanted to be a filmmaker, it wasn't the digital age we live in now. You had to buy film. So, like, that was, like, improbable at that time. And the Internet wasn't where it was, so buying film was, like, you know, very hard. So I think screenwriting started as a necessity, but I, I think as, a, as we got into an age where someone like me could pick up a camera and make a movie, that became appealing to me too, you know. So uh, I, I do consider myself probably a better screenwriter than director, but I do also like, uh, I found out, I do, I thought I hated it, but producing is a great activity because I like to bring projects together. I kind of want to make 10 projects. A director can only make one project, you know, hmm. so. And so how do you tie into this whole thing? Where did you guys bump into each other and how did you get involved? Well, the the Right Brain Studios, uh, uh, as I was as I was mentioning, they we we linked up because of our mutual social justice interests. So I was a Washington delegate for Bernie Sanders, ended up back in Philly, and I think we met at a Jill Stein event. As they were covering a lot of the the events that were outside the convention, uh, and there were massive protests. Uh, but it was also like a, a focal point for many different people, even like Seattle's Shama Sawant was on stage at one point. They had Dr. Nina Turner was there, uh, Jill Stein, Cornell West was there. It was like the who's who of like, you of, know, of like progressive, progressive politics, right? And so Kevin was there getting all this great footage on camera. And when I bumped into him and told him I was a delegate, that's when... He, he interviewed me, and we've been rolling from there. Yeah, yours kind of perked up when he said he was a delegate. You know, we're like, okay, these people were inside the convention. That's like the one place we couldn't get. You know, so you know, in that in that whole vein too, like it was such a it's such an interesting place to meet someone because like the emotions there were, were very high. They were very heavy, and the funny part about that story is that. Um, at the time, which I was single at the time, I actually had a really big crush politically uh as well as just in general on jill stein age-wise don't care was like saw her speak a few times and was like as a bernie person was like you know i don't know who this is but you know and so and it was more policy based as weird as that sounds i had gotten so political that i was like really attracted to this pot the policies of this woman so 
I actually sent her a message. I think it was on Facebook. Um, I think I asked her to get coffee, which is like kind of ridiculous. I don't know what mind state I was in at that time, but I took a shot and, uh, but she was very humbling and nice about it and was like, oh, you know, like if you're out the convention, like hit us up, like if you're doing, cause I told her I was doing a film too. And, uh, it, the fact that we actually got the interview with her, like, so you, kinda, so you had the coffee. Yeah, we ended all. up, we did not get the coffee, but oh. I remember she was nice enough. We bumped into each other in the field during all the mayhem and. Uh, she happened to remember that I was wearing an army jacket in about like 100 degree weather and refused to take it off and was just like dying. So she kind of remembered me and I was able to like track her down. And it was a little bit of chasing her around the whole week, but it was really fun. And we yeah, we got the interview at the end. She really just sat down with us for 20 minutes. We never released the interview or maybe we did later, but it's like, you know, in its entirety. But it's a good 20 minute discussion. And I think anybody who watches that will know that there's no way like she was a Russian stooge. But, but besides that, <laughs> you know, there's just, she's just a really kind, good hearted, you know, uh, Harvard doctor. You know, it's like. But just um, the next time around for a documentary, and I knew we lost some of our supporters because the doc did well and had a little following, um, we said we're not going to do any more political stuff for a bit. Not that we're not going to do political stuff, we're going to do social stuff. And I think that's a big difference. Political and social justice, like politics is the theatrics to me. Social justice doesn't even need to have a party identification. I think that's the kind of films we want to make. Um, that people of all types that are suffering or underrepresented could dig in. Yeah. So Wes, what was your background? How did you get to uh, how did you get to that spot? Education wise, what did you do before that? Well, I went to uh, to school in San Diego right after I graduated, and I got a good dose of uh, truth from a couple teachers. One was a sociology professor, and one was a political science professor, and it just kind of put me on a certain sort of path in terms of critical thinking, critical discourse and getting underneath the, the surface of what's really being painted in the media as the dominant narrative. So uh, one of my uh, professors, political science professors, uh, showed a documentary on the Iran-Contra scandal and what happened with, uh, with Webb uh, for the San Jose Mercury when he exposed the whole Iran-Contra scandal. And, and it just kind of rocked my world. I actually went back to... Uh, Washington, D.C. in 1999 to watch the Clinton impeachment hearings as a, uh, as a, a kind of a internship. But it was only a couple of weeks, but I did sit in on them. And I, th I thought what was interesting, there were a couple of things that were interesting about that. Uh, one, that we spent so much time as a nation uh, worried about a lie about a, a sex act which now I guess is, is commonplace. We don't really impeach for that anymore. But I thought what was interesting also is that I was the only one sitting in the audience. And so there's an upper tier to the House of Representatives. And when I went there, I was the only American citizen, private citizen, who I guess was interested or cared enough to sit in on the proceeding, really? at least that day at that time. Yeah, and there was... So the halls of Congress were empty. So I just kind of, I thought about, you know, that's, that's kind of the level of engagement of that Americans feel, uh, at least in terms of the importance of that issue. Right. It's a sad commentary, but man, what a metaphor for, you know. And, and also, in my opinion, a metaphor for Wesley, though. Like, he's the one guy that would be there. For like that, you know what I mean? Like, that's I, really great. I've always found the way people use power and policy fascinating. Uh, and a lot of that is I don't agree with a lot of the policies that have been put in place during my lifetime. But then also it's just, you know, the way people wield, pow wield power, you know, like how they use it as a tool 
for something that could be positive and beneficial to uh, the good of everyone? Or is it uh, an action that's uh, self-aggrandizing or, or ego-based, you know, where it's about uh, how they can feel a certain way about what they're exercising, you know? And it's not always that black or white. Sometimes, you know, this, those two things can go hand in hand. There's a gray area, but um, yeah, it's always fascinated me. And I, I'm like Kevin with social justice. I think when it's when it, it's, it the the emotion is compassion, empathy, caring for people first. Um, you know, you, you don't, you're not worried about the next election cycle, at least not in the sense that you know, will I win or will I lose? Movement building is about how do you connect people and bring people together around ideas that will change things for the better. That's right. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a mutual love of ours is the social justice element of it and creating connection and making people's lives better. So how do you tell your story when people don't want to listen? Which story and what people? I don't yeah. know. I mean... It depends um, who you want to tell that story to. You know. Do you kind of evaluate audiences when you tell your story or is your story... How do you visualize that? I, I try to be welcoming of anybody. If, if somebody who I didn't target wants to come in, but I do think you have to target an audience. The idea, like my movies for everyone, one is too broad and two isn't going to be good. The idea of a piece of art that's really challenging any kind of true narrative, it absolutely cannot be a sort of incremental, uh, not to go into politics, but I think film is the same way. It cannot be a moderate film. Why are you making films if you're not prepared to take a stand? I, I couldn't understand it. So movies to me that are getting 100% of Rotten Tomatoes, when they advertise that in a commercial, I'm like, all right, I'll keep my money. I'll wait for something that's actually going to challenge me. If 100% of people like it, that means it's a pretty passive film that doesn't have a true message, doesn't have a true, uh, to me, a perspective, because everybody loves it. Now, if a movie had a really unique perspective, how could everybody love it? It just, uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's, it's funny. I'd rather see, like, we wanted to promote, like, if we had gotten it, we would have promoted on our trailers a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes or, like, a 50 or a 20 and say, come see it. Like, people didn't like it. A lot you of people might like were, it. You might yeah, <laughs> people were ruffled by it, so that means it's a challenge. Movies that get such overwhelming are not challenging the audience because audiences today don't really like to be challenged. Films have become escapist, not introspective. Instead of looking inward at society in a lens that can be uncomfortable and, and again, force the audience to reevaluate, they would, you know, to me, it's the difference between psychedelics, uh, taking a psychedelic and drinking. To me, modern films are like drinking. You go out, you drink. It's kind of, I'm not saying in a rude way, it's a fairly mindless endeavor and oftentimes is a good escape, not maybe as introspective. If you take LSD or something like that, that's going to be an introspective thing. And that's why you meet a lot of people, especially people that drink a lot, that are afraid of taking something like LSD is because they're going to have to look inward at their demons rather than just escape them. And I think cinema should be like that. You should look inward at the demons of society where it shouldn't be like a cheap thrill. Like, I'm going to go to the theater and I'm going to not pay attention. I mean, I can understand that. That's just not why I watch movies. I think of them as an art form and not a consumer-based product to, uh, you know, zone out to. It, it, it brings to mind um, there was probably four or five projects we were supposed to have in the last three years and they all fell through. So it's great you have seven ideas because only two sometimes work. Yeah. Um, but the follow-up before Nightcrawlers to the Revolution Televised, which was my 2016 documentary, was going to be uh, called Chemical Highway. And it was going to be about seven different drugs, each episode being an exploration, like for LSD, like a lot of people... I think one way to help with drug use is education and actually in a fun way. So if you had a 10-minute episodes that are around 1 or 2 in the morning that something somebody could 
presumably smoke weed and watch, uh, late night kind of entertaining, maybe a little psychedelic. But if the series itself was educating the viewer about drugs while it was entertaining, like a Carl Sagan or something like that, uh, what a great way to get a drug user to maybe possibly take better care of themselves is to really let them know where these things come from. I know a lot of addicts that really didn't know much about what they were giving their life to. So like, you know, you hear about LSD, a lot of people don't know the stuff about the witch trials and how that factored into Air God and the rye fungus. And there's just like a really deep history of the Albert Hoffman and like all that tied together makes for a pretty fascinating character study. If the drug was a character. So like an <laughs> drugs have arcs in their own way. So like, it, it sounds strange, but that was a project that this conversation brings me back to, like, uh, that I kind of still wish we would do. Because I think that, like, there's something really fascinating about substances. Not not from a, oh, look, cool, let's, let's use drugs, but just, like, they, may, they make up a much bigger part of our culture and history than we realize. Art and, you know, even war. I mean, the Opium War and what he's talking about with the Dark Alliance with Gary Webb. And, mm-hmm. That stuff's pretty important. I mean, that that they, uh, you know, Reagan was letting communities be poisoned essentially mm-hmm. to pay for a, a shadow war, and like it's been confirmed, and that's all but not talked about. Like, mm-hmm. that's the part of addiction we don't talk about is the crack epidemic. But who was causing it, and what was it paying for, and how soon we forget, like you know, polluting, uh, you know, inner city communities to fund a war that's of our own people. That's just unbelievable. And then the only person who went down for it was Rick Ross. Essentially, like his source, who was Nicar- from Nicaragua. Yeah, well, Oliver North, uh, you know, he was going to take the fall, but now, you know, he's back on Fox News these days. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's interesting how these, these sorts of things work. And also, you know, that someone, you know, a kid with no real access to higher education or sustained employment or health care in America can try to make a better life better for himself by going out and selling, you know, a 20 bag and, and then be part of the prison pr- pipeline for the next, you know, r- maybe the rest of his life if it doesn't get off, taken off his record, right? So so that's his reality. But then you've got, you know, uh, a major world bank getting caught with a billion dollars of cocaine on their ship. And who is going to be responsible for that? Is the head of the bank going to go down? No, it just happened to be on their ship and we're going to, you know. So it's, it's interesting the you know that we can go after certain demographic demographics of people certain sorts of people on the street but yet the people that are really pushing this stuff like you know with this nightcrawlers documentary what about taking a look at the ceos who are uh or the owners of these companies as well that are putting out the opioids that are killing tens of thousands of americans every year and and why are there not criminal charges for corporations? I mean, if we get if with Citizens United we give them the same rights as people, if we say corporations are essentially people, which is the current uh, Supreme Court ruling, then why can't they be held accountable and go to prison as be, uh, you know with the same sentences? It's interesting. Yeah, it, it takes me into thinking about the panel last night. Uh, I met a lot of these people for the first time last night, and, and it's great when you make art that's, that's doing things like that, but, uh, you know, helping a social cause or even trying to spark a discussion. But it was really humbling meeting people that are really on the ground floor. So I definitely want to mention on here, um, you know, people, People's Harm Reduction Alliance. and Shiloh uh, Jama with, yeah, yeah Dan, Dan Strong with Amber and, and just, um, you know, and stuff Cascadia is doing. Just 
people early on the ground, you know, on the ground floor, ground zero during this issue. And, and a lot of stuff they were saying that was interesting to me was like, a, there's like, a, I think Shiloh said, like a war on trauma. Or like there's, or even beyond that, just the idea of like the addict becomes the enemy in many ways, the enemy of society. That's the that's the narrative that's pushed out. But it's a way to look at, to, to ignore the actual root cause of it, which is usually systemic. So it's usually like the people at the top and then making that person the outcast. I mean, you think about all the little things that factor into addiction. Um, you know, like he said, I mean, I mean, just there's so many circumstances that are outside of the addict's control, but there was always, always treated like, well, why can't they just, you know, not go out and party and have a good time? Like the mentality is so off base that it just, it's really sad and it shuts down any chance of a real discussion about it. You know, I just think we ignore that, you know, addiction comes from trauma and trauma comes from a lot of social based elements. And a lot of them have to do with the people in charge, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, they've let poison these communities, you know, and the war on drugs, which they've let, you know, for profit, lock people up and, you know, all of it's related. It's all related, but, you know, there's just idea like there's nothing we can do. I think that they they seem to declare it a national emergency, but nobody really wants to help. And, and, and another thing I like to think is, so opiate addiction definitely mostly affects white uh, so opiate addiction mostly affects white communities. It tends to, I think it's like 70% or something for heroin addiction. But victims of addiction are also dealers. And that's a really bizarre perspective for me. But I do find people who are forced into poverty are going to seize on a black market created by a war on drugs. So in some ways, I feel like they're pushed with their back against the wall in a lot of cases to become dealers. And then the pressures they face from gangs and things like that. Like I do think... There, you're also a victim if you're an eight-year-old selling drugs on the street. You know, you were part of the same situation, really. One's an addict, but you're also a victim, I think, in a failed war on drugs um, and an opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned Cascadia, so I'd like to hear about the Cascadia Funk Works where you screened your film. Yeah. And then let's talk about the film, too. It'll give me a spoiler alert if you want to talk about the whole trajectory of the film, but sure, inside. I'm okay with it. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't think it's the kind of movie like Mar, like the Avengers, where you're gonna, you know, <laughs> I think we all know kind of where the film's going from the trailer and stuff. So I don't mind at all. All right. Well, I think uh, I think the reason that uh, Cascadia Funk Works wanted to be part of the film and also the panel was because uh, many of the issues that are addressed with bioregionalism um, are issues that are at kind of the center of uh, looking at addicts and, and people with trauma from a compassionate perspective and actually looking at all people from like a human-centered perspective. So what is bioregionalism? Uh, so so the, the person to talk to about that is Brandon, if people want to go to Cascadia now because he's the head of the department of the bioregion. But uh, my understanding of bioregionalism is that uh, we're really looking at, instead of state and national borders, looking at certain geographic regions and looking at uh, particular points in nature and saying what are the, uh, the biological uh, things that define certain regions. So Cascadia would go, you know, in terms of our bioregion, would go up to uh, up north in Canada, out east into Montana, down to northern California. And uh, one of the major things that we have in our bioregion is Mount Rainier, right? A 14,000-foot active volcano. So one of the things that uh, bioregionalism also supports is native peoples and native cultures telling their stories that go back hundreds or thousands of years about the things in their region that are connected directly to nature. 
And so, uh, again, it's about connecting people. It's about bringing people together to better understand each other, give them uh, opportunities to be able to share their, their hearts, their culture, their stories, and connect that way instead of, uh, you know, some of the things we see that are more problematic with nationalism. Okay. It was my first experience with it, too, um, going to the, to the Cascadia Funk Works and just meeting those people. Bioregionalism was something I had never heard of before a month ago. So it was really nice to hear about it. It's a different way of trying to help, a different perspective of trying to help. I think that's what we need is a lot of different perspectives and a lot of new uh, methods. Uh, they're doing something that's kind of a new wave. You know, it was, I didn't even understand it at first because it's so different. I think that's the kind of new ideas of the new generation we really want. We don't want to build upon the same ideas that have failed. I think we need to be trying innovative things like Cascadia is doing. So how do you think social media comes into storytelling? Do you think people are disengaged by social media? Or do you think storytelling is more effective face-to-face? -face? <laughs> I mean, we both use social media to a degree <clears throat> to get our message out, right? Um, but, you know, there's no intro class for social media. You just decide when you're however old that you want to start a Facebook page, and then next thing you know, you're off and running. And some people check their phones a couple times a day. Most people more like 20 times a day or more, right? Can be 200. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's more like a necessary evil at this point. Uh, for, just for me personally is that I feel, you know, I have some people that are interested in the content of my art. A great way to get it to them is through, you know, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Um, but I don't feel like, just like we saw with the Nightcrawlers film, uh, you know, just because a thousand people are interested doesn't mean that they're going to come, right? And just because uh, people uh, like your book virtually doesn't mean that they're going to go out necessarily and organize around those ideas or have an internal shift. Now. I would argue people that see uh, Nightcrawlers and Kevin's films, it's they're going to have some sort of internal feeling about it. I mean, they're very sharp films that that uh, uh, portray human beings in very real human terms. And so, so I think you know, it, can it help art? Yeah, social media can can uh, help us get our message out. But then there's a lot of stuff on social media that maybe is not art <laughs> i feel like with social media i feel like i'm doing I'm like having dinner with the enemy or something like for me like it's like it's a necessary evil uh from my perspective like as a filmmaker like i more so i would much rather and i'm going to work my whole life too i'd much rather die with like usurper written on my gravestone <laughs> like someone who tried to challenge a monarchy than a filmmaker so i mean that's, i'm obsessed with the word usurper and like uh and I, and I honestly think that i'm sure people laugh at me but trying to like you know take on the, what I think the entertainment industry similar to the, um, the political establishment it's just an establishment to me run by three or four companies to try to take on that and make films that give a dose of reality um, you know I'd be willing to work like my whole life but I feel like in that same way in this industry with that perspective I'm still gonna have to work with producers and distributors and even if I was to use my own platforms you have to you have to dinner with your enemies sometimes yeah. and you keep your enemies closer than your friends so I think social media is this thing I've learned to just have to deal with and I was someone who didn't have a Facebook until someone forced me to make one when I was 17. I'm going to make it for you. Like, I had no interest. Um, and I didn't get an, a, an iPhone until about three years ago. And I didn't get uh, an Instagram until about a year and a half ago. So I'm pretty late on all of it. Face-to-face uh, -face is all I knew. And storytelling, even face-to-face, -face was all I knew. So for people like me, for my generation, I'm sure even your generation at Wesley's, like, 
<laughs> like we're not conditioned for this game that's changing really fast so i feel like i have to try to get on top of it but at the end of the day if i have a thousand followers that really fuck with can we curse on here oh, yeah, yeah. If i have a thousand followers <laughs> that really fuck with right brain's work or fuck with my work i just i could care less about ten thousand or fifty thousand or a million i know people who have a million followers and can't sell 10 t-shirts and we've sold a lot of merch to people that really care so that for me that's fine i take a theater of 20 people that really fuck with right brain over a full house and it's like they just picked it because it was between this and the avengers and this other thing and next week they won't even be caring about it like the same people that you know jump from platform like i, I do hulu then i do netflix and i do amazon and I, I go see like there's i feel like there's no loyalty to any specific thing it's like whatever will take up my attention for two hours so I'm not really seeking like what I consider like a more swipe community of people that are like next, next, next. They just consume, consume, consume. You're probably not going to like our stuff because our stuff is supposed to be hard to digest. We want you to like chew on it and maybe even throw it up, not just be able to like swallow it and move on, swallow it and move on. So, you know, we want to bring raw stuff, raw yeah. stuff that's hard to, you know, hard to digest. So in this case, it actually worked because that's how I found you. I found some Facebook post, Nightcrawler, one of my friends liked it. And uh, I said I was interested. Facebook reminded me. And I showed up, I just thought I was going to be filming, or like a film. I showed up to the actual panel of people, it was face-to-face, -face. it was super interesting, and then we got into the movie. That's the beauty of social media, there's the, there's the sort of good and the evil of it. The great thing is you can send a message in a bottle out through email or social media, even a tweet, and you never know who might find it. So I think that, you know, you can't ignore that, you know, there's good and evil in everything. That's what makes those shades of great, right? Yeah, so let's talk about the film. You're a director. How, how was you, what was your role in directing a film that's kind of self so I actually didn't direct this film. I produced it. The director is the filmmaker who, who's in it, so that's Stephen McCoy. But uh, uh, this is the first time I really, I mean, I produced my own documentary in 2016, and I consider that like my debut my debut film um, as a political doc. So for with this one, I wanted to step back and have somebody else's vision come to the front. Um, I felt like, okay, I started Right Brain. I made our debut with like, we almost had no resources. This next one, we had a little more money than the first one, um, and it was somebody else's project, and we were gonna help them complete it. We didn't have the resources to start something from scratch. So I think that stepping in as a producer and trying to help something get done, is it's a really fun part of the process. There's no real rules to it from the way we make films, which is a little more dangerous. There's no rules, and it, it was sort of like, uh, it was a different job at all times. At times it was trying to help Steven stay on course. At times it was trying to get, you know, the editor who was amazing, this guy Luke, Luke Benson, trying to get him in synergy with Steven. And, and sometimes it was trying to make sure Steven was like, you know, can they help him survive too? I mean, it was just, it was a really unique experience. We don't make movies like anybody else. And, 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 it, and I mean that is actually the physical making of the movies. Like it was a very fascinating process. There was a lot that went into it. There were stabbings, there was a court case, just a lot of things that normal productions nowadays, maybe for good, don't go up against. So I think that making films on the in the fringe and this sort of underground thing that we're doing that sort of ignores traditional rules has allowed, it's like an adventure, you know, up and down. You know, I mean, there were times where I, you have to really, when I find a project now, when it comes to producing or directing, I'm only looking for something that I would actually die or like get arrested to make. I mean, that's, if it's not that, I just don't care. Because that means I'm really willing to give it all up for this. And that's a really good exercise in whether it's worth spending, you know, like two years to make. I just wish I had uh, more people. I wish Right Brain, and that's what we're in the process of doing, is trying to align ourselves with more people like Wesley and Cascadia and just more art collectives and filmmakers who feel like they are underrepresented on the outside. Hollywood doesn't seem to have any interest. The only diverse voices Hollywood wants is ones Hollywood can control, right? Like, we'll take this great black filmmaker who made a great you know minority filmmaker who made a great project and we'll give them the new little mermaid and it's like 
why don't you let them come up with a new idea instead of rehashing a movie from a problematic time in Disney? Like, I feel like they only give minorities a new voice to retell their own stories. And I'm just, we really want to work with people who want to tell their stories and they don't want the same remakes and reboots. You know, I think that, that's how I feel about it. So, I mean, as a filmmaker, uh, I'm really just trying to reach more people and team up with more people. I think we could build an army. And Wesley's over here trying to help me in another way, do something like that. A social group of a lot of people that are just fed up with what we're seeing and being fed. So were you involved in day one of this project or when did you step in? No, so actually, um, we did the documentary in 2016 and we took a little break. It was a, There's a depressing come down when you finish something like that, especially when you get death threats. So we took a little time off and we had a meeting maybe like three, four or five months later. We hadn't really, some of us seen each other in a while. So the first time everyone was in a room together and uh, and right room was like, what do we do next? And somebody put a trailer on that was very old. It was like 2012 and there was no updates on this thing. And this is, you know, 2017, so it's five years old. And we were like, we got to find out what's going on with it. And we, you know, I got a hold of Steve and he was in a shelter, flew him to LA. He lived with me and what we, you know, we felt we were, so we came into the process about five years in. Steven had basically spent five years on the movie and he had not had the results he wanted. He was very limited technology wise. He was using like iMovie basically to cut a feature film, which is like kind of crazy. Um, and the footage was just too much for one person to really get their head around. And then you have to think of how involved he was in the film. When you're that close to the material, you're going to be a little biased in how you portray yourself. I mean, naturally, you know, there's going to be these bias and these things that come in. And so we felt like what he was showing us that he'd been working on for five years, generally, he wasn't putting himself in the movie like almost at all. It was almost all street people and almost no Steven. And we were like your fall you know your your crashing is going to uplift a lot of people that's a big part of the story why is that not in the movie so naturally i don't know if he was shy or he just was doing something you know envisioned something different but that's a cool project it just evolved once we joined up with him we gave him resources we brought there's an editor that came in named luke and we all just spent two years trying to piece this thing together and so i guess all in all the movie's a seven-year process we were in it for two i thought it was going to be three months it was like apocalypse now i'm like it was going to be two or three months and then 24 months later, we finished it. So that's fascinating. Okay. So, how many showings have you had so far? We've done five. Um, we did one in uh, the, as soon as we finished the film. Well, I guess technically, as soon as we finished the film, we did a little uh, living room screening, just close friends, like very close friends. Nobody had seen it, but we've been talking about it for two years. So, we did that, and uh, it was like maybe eight people that we really like, loved, and respected. And they seemed to react well to it. It was closer to being two hours at that point. Um, and then we did another one, like the trailer kind of blew up on Reddit and on YouTube. Uh, so then we, uh, Vice got, you know, uh, someone we knew worked at Vice, showed it to Vice, Vice thought it was cool. So they let us use their theater for like maybe a 15 person screening. We went up like by five people. And I voted some people I knew and some I did not know. Total strangers, I wanted a lot of reactions. If people hated, I wanted to know. Um, it was still kind of a work in progress. And actually what was cool was Steven's brother actually came to that. So he happened to live in LA and he had to come out and see the movie. and. He lived through that with Steven, so having him there was huge. But I thought, for a minute, I thought he was going to hit me. He's a boxer, he's a great guy, and I don't think Steven told him anything about the movie over a seven or five year span. Um, so I actually felt like I maybe might have brought him anyway, feeling like an ambush of some kind. Imagine if you went to a crowd of people to watch a movie your brother made, didn't know what it was, and were seeing some of this personal stuff played out on the screen. But at the end, he really gave it his blessing, and that was huge. Um, so that was an experience. And then the other three, uh, after that, we just did Boston, Philly, um, and I don't really count Maryland, didn't really work out. So I just say Boston, Philly, and uh, Seattle, so just three. 
Okay. Um, we were just doing private screenings because we got into a festival, so you're not allowed to do these world premiere kind of big public screenings when you're in a festival. So we already told them in Nashville that you know you have our world premiere. So in that vein, all we could do is very private kind of small screenings for people we thought it would help. So that's what we've done. So where do you want to go with it? What's next? Um, or how do you get it out there? So a lot of festivals rejected it. I think like 15 rejected it and a lot of times kind of apologetically and said that they, they did think it was a powerful film, but they just were kind of afraid to show it. So we got lucky that after we did some of these screenings on our own, um, Philadelphia, uh, Philly Weekly wrote an article about it and then some festivals reconsidered it. And then there was just, so what happens is when a lot of festivals say no, it's very hard to get momentum. Even when people are telling you on the internet like they really want to see it, especially when it's an important issue. We got lucky that a festival in Nashville was willing to do it. Um, they just hit us up and they said that they didn't want us to change anything and they loved it. And um, and then we did the screenings in Philly and this momentum just starts to build. And then like Denver reconsidered it and they changed their mind that Denver now wants to play the film. And then, you know, other festivals like, you know, Real Recovery are looking into it. So I think like it just kind of picks up momentum. I'm hoping the film, like we don't think it's ever going to be Avatar or like, you know, like anything like Titanic or like even, even, like a big budget movie, but we do think that this movie is important and there's a lot of people that want to see it and a lot of people that feel like it represents them. The, the screening last night was the biggest, one of the most important ones I told Wesley because I felt like addicts and specialists and the people that this movie was really made for in some ways, not for just to watch because they've experienced it, but to represent. Um, and this, this was supposed to be the big idea was to like, tell their story, which a lot of addicts connect with, to finally play it for addicts and have and, and, and counselors and specialists and people and have them say like, no, I think he nailed it. Like this really does represent our struggle. That was, to me, that's like winning the Oscar. Like I was like, okay, we did it. We did our job, you know? Yeah, so like if I self-publish a book, I can put it on Amazon. But like if you self-publish a movie, how do you, how do you get it to regular people to watch? How do you monetize that? I hate to do it, but we have thought about, I know everybody's doing like a Patreon, but, but we would much rather do our own platform that is a rough website, like kind of almost like not super clean where you can kind of dig around and find content and pay like almost a communist thing where everyone throws a few bucks in, like two bucks. And, uh, you know, we get a lot of stuff off the internet that, uh, we're all, you know, we want to, we want to have a platform for stuff that doesn't have millions of views. Like you don't like, like when we found Nightcrawlers, it had like 30 views. I can't imagine we are the miracle workers who found the one movie that's great that has 20 views or like Steven didn't have a single social media page. How many other Stevens out there are there like incredible artists without resources? Those are the people I want to find and I want to get us on one platform that is very cheap that everybody can just, if only a couple people pitch a few bucks in, we just want to be able to keep making stuff for people. That's the only thing that we always are up against is money because we are willing to be you know, your server, because we're willing to make projects that speak against the merit, the mainstream narrative, because we make that sacrifice, which makes, you know, it harder, we don't have money. <laughs> you know, it's it, we have some money, but we don't have enough to do the things we want to do. And then that's always the problem. So when you're speaking truth to power, you don't get advertisers, you don't get monetized, you don't have, uh, you know, big companies kicking your door down, you know, you don't have, an, you know, so... It's been it's always an uphill battle with every project we make, and we're not going to stop doing projects like this. So I hope some wealthy person who loves what we're doing will say, you know what, you know, a good capitalist, you know what, I love what they're doing, and I'm willing to get behind them because there is a market for people. I think it's I think our audience is a mixture of like just people. They could be political, they could be cinema fans. They just feel like they're underrepresented. They're not seeing news stories. They're not hearing stories about the people that reflect their communities that are suffering. They're seeing like, guy tries to get girl, guy can't get girl, 90 minute bullshit, you know what I mean? Like, there's much bigger issues in the world than can I get the girl or not. 
How about like, can I eat or not? You know, mm. oh, you know. So that's. I'm sorry, I rant so much, but uh, I love Wesley. You know, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> it's like in your case, like how much? Like speaking of economics, how much did it cost you to invest in this project, and how much you've received so far on the screenings, and how do you map it out if you want to do it in the next project? Does this one have to pay off, or do you just kind of? So I guess like number wise, I'll probably just be vague, just as like a person. But I'd say I spent about like five or six grand to make Nightcrawlers, you know, which is kind of crazy in the main scheme of things when you think about like movies aren't made for less than I think like hundreds of grand, like true documentaries, like they say they are and they're so indie, but you know, indie movies now have like $10 million Oscar campaigns, you know? So like, I think that it was made for about five or six grand. And what was the second part of the question? Oh, oh how to recoup the money. Yeah, exactly. That was the thing because our overhead was low, which is what I love about what we do. We never made a project for more than five or six grand, um, you know, feature basically projects is doing a couple screenings could start to really cut into that budget. I mean, I think we've almost got a 20 or 30% return and we've done like three screenings. I mean, think about that. And we still own the film. We haven't sold off to anybody. I think that when you have a movie made with like minimum, with low, uh, really low cost, you almost can't lose. I mean, you do a small screening, you make, you know, five, $600 say, you give some of that to charity. You've almost done ten percent of your budget, and uh, you have the movie till whenever you sell it off. So I think we're in a very good position to not only make a profit on it, but to show you that you can make movies for cheap and make money. Do I think the Nightcrawlers will sell for millions of dollars? Probably not, but we don't need to sell for millions of dollars to make a profit and spark a discussion. So I take the money hit, but I do think that uh, the idea would be for someone to either buy it or I think it would do great video on demand. All the people are telling me they can't make the screenings, asking where are you playing it next will probably purchase it uh, online, I think, and get the chance to watch it in their home. So uh, it also, I think, is the kind of film, because it's challenging, that will uh, spark a discussion and end up following people into their, you know, when they meet up with their friends and say, have you seen this movie? It's kind of crazy. Like, that's what I think our, our agents kind of think is once word spreads, people are going to go looking for it. So, that, that's kind of funny. It's like how you, how you view the return on your investment. Is it a financial return? Or is it people talking about it, spreading the word, spreading the message, people, you know, having a conversation about what you just showed? People having a conversation is invaluable. It spreads the movie. It kind of works both ways. You know, it, it helps in the way of, you know, getting the word out so people will purchase it. But more so, it, it just, it sparks a discussion, which is the point of film in general. If you can do both, if you can make your money back, but it's also, I mean, what great advertising is people just talking about your movie, you know, let alone blasting Facebook ads is one thing, but people on a whole ride home, and next time they see their friends, like, reintroducing that into a conversation i think that's kind of invaluable i take that any day so do you have any ideas bouncing around your head for the next project <laughs> i could tell you more so about there were just so many great projects that should have been there was actually um one project that really broke my heart that we didn't get to do was um you know you ever heard of boys club it was actually a comic book that Pepe the Frog actually premiered in, but it was way like it was like ten years ago. Yeah, so sounds really white nationalism way. wasn't even it. That was not anything to do with this comic. <laughs> it was written by like a really laid back cartoonist about these three frat bros, and it made fun of frat culture. It was amazing. It's so funny, and Pepe is the white nationalism has nothing to do with this comic. So when we were doing the Revolution televised, it, the timing was weird. It was before the Pepe stuff. I reached out to him and said we should animate it. We should make like an animated film of that series. And there was a great YouTube video at the time called Don't Touch, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, which was like this crazy puppet, like viral video. The special effects were really gnarly, like trippy, like Sesame Street. It was really crazy. I said, why don't we get you guys to animate this Boys Club comic? It'll be so cool. And they both happened to love each other's work. So it seemed like this was going to go down. 
and then the peppy stuff it was so weird it just took storm and that guy mm-hmm. had to go in hiding he was getting like death threats and so the project just got pulled so now i'm just really ca- careful about because so many projects have fallen through i was in talks with a lsd chemist in prison for life and that didn't really go where i wanted it so my whole thing is i'm just keeping my eyes open for another night crawler something that takes my interest and i know i'll go all in on um yeah, how did you pick the name Nightcrawler? Because of course we know the Jake Gyllenhaal movie Nightcrawler, which is so our film predates it, and um, that was a, a term okay. Stephen coined for. Uh, and it's irony because he becomes that very thing is what he had coined these sort of people that live under the cracks of society that are ignored, uh, not to not to degrade them as insects, but they live under the, the fringe of society, under the layer of society, and then they're struggling every day. Like you know, you think about like even like an ant is a powerful insect that can carry ten times the weight on its back. I think. These people at night, you know, that live in the streets really, like, carry the weight on their shoulders. And, you know, I think they're kind of, like, heroes for that. So I think Nightcrawlers isn't, like, a derogatory term. It's, like, it's awesome. Like, they're Nightcrawlers. So, um, but, yeah, and I, you know, and I think, uh, yeah. I mean, even with Wesley, we, we, we've really talked about creatively collaborating because I think one thing that me and him really bond over is art and how art can really change a conversation. And so I think... Uh, we, you know, even as proud of Izzy as I've always talked to him about us putting our resource together. He writes books. He, you know, he writes lyrics, and there, there's there's a whole thing that what he does that I think I've always told him could become a visual medium, like a but like a film or something like that. So I think that trying to work with people I like, you know. And speaking of Wes, in, in his book, he actually has a really awesome book. And for the Seattle people that know us, uh, I'll let you tell tell us who drew the pictures. Oh yeah. So uh, well, actually, there's. So the, the first book that I put out in the Adventures of Alea series is called King Tiny Hands. It's a story of a very rude and obnoxious orange-skinned boy who has uh, yellow hair that shimmers in the light. But most unbelievable of all, his hands are very, very small. And uh, Alea actually takes a trip across Puget Sound and encounters this young boy and shows him compassion and kindness. And he returns her to her with arrogance and uh, condescending tone. And so the, the book is really about showing compassion to people, but also how to set healthy boundaries when someone tries to take advantage of you or tries to grab you with his tiny hand. <laughs> and the illustrator is none other than Ryan Henry Ward. Um, Henry actually is uh, the most prolific muralist, I think we can safely say, in Seattle. He's painted hundreds, if not thousands, of murals at this point, he, including in the Seattle public schools, on people's garages. He's painted cars that you'll probably see. Uh, around town with big buggy-eyed Sasquatches so and cool. yeah, just driving uh, octopuses. And yeah, he's painting. A bri- I think he's painting a car wash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. a bunch of Sasquatches in there or something. Yeah, he is. He is a Seattle fixture. He's a he's a gift to Seattle, uh, really. And he's been in, and his creative art um, has been uh, something that he has developed now for a number of years, and he was inspiring to me to do the book series because I had this idea for King Tiny Hands that was, uh, you know, satire that could be entertaining for children, educational for children, and I would say more entertaining for adults, right? And uh, being a teacher and having read this to a number of students, I can communicate the ethical points in the book um, in a certain way. And then the, the, the parents appreciate that, but then also they get the whole part of it that's political satire, which the kids don't get. So it's, uh, the book was uh, really fun to write, and I'm really appreciative to Henry for doing the illustrations. I'm working with, uh, actually, Brittany Wilde on the rest of the series. Henry's got his hands full. But I want to do at least half a dozen books. 
So uh, Brittany Wild of Wild Designs is has done the last two and is on board for the next couple as well. Very cool. You know, are you self-published here also? Are you, are you posted on Amazon? People can buy them there. Self-published. Uh, I've done Kickstarters to be able to, to publish the first three and working on the fourth now. Uh, what I would like to do is uh, find a really good independent publisher that is interested in picking up the books. And uh, right now we actually have two of the three books translated into English and Spanish and working on the English to French also to, uh, because I'll be moving to Montreal next year. Okay. Yeah. So, so they're not available for the for purchase yet? They're available for purchase uh, through our website, kingtinyhands.com. Uh, that's for five copies or more. So anyone that wants them for uh, their classrooms, you know, they, they want to shoot me an email. If they're teachers, uh, they get discounts. Uh, but really the idea is social justice for children, talking about real things in a way that can lead to productive discussions and, uh, and benefit young people and uh, inoculate them against the, the virus of narcissism and other problems. I love that word, inoculation. It's just a great word. Cool. So what's next for you guys? Well, I just finished a leg goes to space, and I'm really excited about it because it's not <laughs> even out yet. But I bought I brought the proof for your show. Awesome and uh, so good. So That's the so good. the next thing for me is is uh, coming off of a leg goes to space, where here she's looking out into the macro. She's looking through her telescope one night, and she sees something that makes her heart leap and gives her great hope. She's never seen anything like it before, and it surprises her when it lands at her front door. Leia is curious to find out what the colorful craft is all about. And so the, Brittany did a really great job with the illustrations. Uh, Leia goes for a ride with, uh, with a, her little E.T. friend, and eventually they end up on Mars, where they encounter none other than King Tiny Hands and his nasty space force. I love it. I love how it ties back in. So, yeah, and then she has a, a wonderful experience going through a quantum wormhole and seeing uh, a vision for what's what will come in the future for herself and the other conscious beings in, in the galaxy. So, so. speaking of uh, spaceships and aliens, what about the, the Storm Area 51 thing going on? <laughs> well, as we know from Facebook, if two million people sign up, that means seven are going. <laughs> and then I think about told, right? <laughs> It blows my mind. Uh, I think it's so funny, but it's just, to me, it, like, it encapsulates the internet culture. It's like, you'd mobilize so many people fucking for that. <laughs> like, if you mobilize that many people and everyone gave 10 bucks, do you know what you could do for, like, a person in society? Like, I hate to take it there, but I, that whole thing just blew my mind. Like, or if 2 million people what, surrounded the ICE detention facilities yeah, in like, the country, you know? Yeah, that, it's like the thing It's like, it has to be do. ridiculous to work. Right. Imagine if two million people got together and fought for against systemic racism and institutional racism. Imagine if two million people got behind a, a candidate running in a down ballot ticket. Like it just like, but no, let's go to Area Fifty One. Um, you know that that was tough for me, and I think that's why at times when I look at what's funny on the internet, what's trending, it's like I definitely could say, okay, that's kind of funny, but I feel like at times it's like another language, and that's what I'm having trouble adapting to. It's like what becomes a popular hashtag, or like what colors to dress, and I just can't find myself like engaging in it. I'm like, you know, it's like there's a cynicism to the internet that that just for me, like it almost feels a little like the joke's dark. It's like we are so detached, 
that this is what we're going to talk about. Like, we are just almost embracing the fact that we run away from, like, real issues by actually turning it into, like, a really funny joke of, like, we're really going to give a lot of time to this. And I, and I, but I mean, and, and, you know, and it's not to be an indictment. It's it's the world we live in, and I'm a part of it, too. And uh, I'm sure I'm guilty of it, too. But it's just, yeah, Area 51 stuff perplexed me. It's like, just think about the people that, like, we just love for, uh, you know, to be able to get that many people together for a common cause of good for society. Like, storing Area 51, like, oh, I'm sure... The place that's become the most popular stereotypical place aliens would be, I'm sure they're just holding. There's, there's still housing yeah, the crafts there, sixty years yeah, later, like, probably yeah, seventy great. years later, probably not. So you didn't buy the shirt then? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I did not buy that shirt. Um, but I will use this chance, even though it's completely unrelated, to shamelessly plug the Nightcrawlers, uh, or more so my my our collective, the Right Brain website. If you go to uh, Nightcrawlers thefilm.com and click on the merch page it'll take you uh right to the big cartel right brain store and that's where you can buy a vhs tape of all steven's early short films including one that he made as early as one month ago though there's all his old short films and one new one and it's the most recent thing steven's made including nightcrawlers that nobody's seen and you can only watch it on that tape so that's what i was going to ask yeah. about who has vhs anymore <laughs> exactly and that's when the, the people try to hit me up on the street with a, a cd Oh, what am I going to do with that? That's the thing about our merch, you know, it's like it's for the certain kind of person, you know, the certain kind of person that has the old hardware or the certain person that's willing to find it. But, you know, I admit, you know, to, but believe it or not, the VHS tapes so well, the, the hard sell is the soundtrack on cassette. Now, that's a, that's a tall ask for people to have to actually buy hardware to use their merch. And that's why I love our merch for that very reason. It's You have to kind of, there's effort to actually enjoy it. It's the opposite of what we're taught as consumers of like, it has to be the easiest experience possible, you know? Yes, you have to earn it. <laughs> you do. And you have to, to power through the, the quality of the VHS and the audio of the VHS. But no, I, I think, um, yeah, there's also posters on our website, again, not to shamelessly promote. And there's a Blu-ray. If you don't have a VHS player, grab a Blu-ray of the Revolution Televised, uh, our 2016 uh, documentary about the DNC. I'd just like to say also, if anyone uh, wants to have a discussion with me about any of the issues that I brought up today or anything that, that Kevin brought up, uh, you can reach me at uh, info at kingtinyhands.com. And also always feel free to send an email to uh, rightbrainstudios at gmail.com. That's rightbrain, W-R-I-T-E. We're planning on putting out a quarterly magazine and series, and we just want, you know, like Wesley, we just want to collaborate and hear new ideas and try to, to try to connect. So just reach out for any reason at all. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Thank Jack. you for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. You bet.